Well, hi, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 10th, 2022. This is episode 3050. And even though I say it's one man's view, Thursday shows are really not one man's view. They're multiple person's views. Today, that all happens to be men, but... We do have a gal or two on the council. If we get questions for them, that would be Amy Dingman and Nicole Sauce. And I do need questions for the expert council. Um, so what I would like you all to do, if you want to have more variety and more information and more stuff on these expert council shows, please participate. Get on over to the show notes today, and you'll see a link uh, in there where you can go to the Meet the Expert Council page. You can see all the experts that we have and kind of scroll through there. And see if there's something you want to know that one of those folks could help you with. And then uh, send an email to me. And I've kind of updated the text in the expert counsel shows today to make sure that whenever you're looking at an expert counsel show and you're thinking, I want to know more about this, you follow the procedure that is more likely to get through my screening, get to the council member, and then get you an answer that actually helps you because everybody's clear what's going on. This is the formula. Email me the question at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. In the subject line, put TSPC expert. That way I know exactly what it is. The TSPC saves it from spam, and the expert tells me which one of my follow-up folders for batching email it needs to go into because I get a lot of email. I batch this stuff out to try to do a good job for y'all. Ask your question and state the expert you have the question for in one coherent sentence. That would be something like, Jack, my question is for Darby Simpson. I have a, my question is his opinion of an American guinea hog crossed with Berkshire hog. That's actually a question we have. That's why I picked it. Here's the details. Blah, 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 blah. Right? But give me the question first. Hit the return key a couple times to separate. So it's just one question, who it's for and what it's about. That's why I can look at that email like a picture, and if, it, if it's in any way sensible, it goes straight to the expert. I don't even think about it. I don't even read your details. That's for the expert. Okay? If you do that, there is about a 90% chance, unless your particular expert happens to be on a piking expedition where they don't answer questions for a while, you are going to get an answer within two or three weeks. People that follow that formula get answers, guys, and these experts are experts in their field. Here's what we got today, and the Ron Paul Liberty highlights. Ron Paul basically has a message for you guys. Please, for the love of God, look past the, 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 the pro-war propaganda in Ukraine, and he really expands it to all propaganda. It is amazing to me how easily influenced the American people are by just blatant propaganda and lies. And, and Ron said, please just start to think. Dan McAdams over there is going to talk about how a limited no-fly zone could very well start World War III. And Chris Rossini is going to talk about breaking the conditioning to always want government to do something when there's a problem. My biggest thing I want government is to stop doing things. Right? That, that's what I want them to do. They, they can always do something if it, what the something they're going to do is to stop doing something. That, that would be all right with me. Jeff Lawton has a really great topic for us on developing permaculture real estate. And uh, this is one that I, I I owe another person a thank you for, David. And I don't want to give his last name, but when I say my buddy David, this guy's my buddy too, but he's not my buddy David, right? Different David, who was here at the workshop we did for Anarchapoco. 
And uh, I told him I had two responses from Jeff that were just dynamite, but there was rain and there was machinery running, and you just I really couldn't use them. He said, send them to me. I'll see if I can clean them up. I haven't checked the second one yet, but this one, I can't even tell there was ever a problem. So we get this one because he cleaned it for us. So thanks, Dave. Darby Simpson will talk about working with American guinea hog crosses. This is one I'm going to actually have some additional things to say something about. Not that I know more about pigs than Darby, but what I do know about is genetics and what happens when we create a hybrid and then when we breed back onto that hybrid and genetic drift back to either character traits of the parent race. So we're going to talk about that a little bit in a follow-up. John Pugliano is going to give us a lightning round on financial and investing questions. Tim the Toolman Cook is going to tell us about three cool new products, and they are totally different from each other. There's no correlation between this all three things you're going to want to know about uh one of them in particular if you're more in northern climates the other one's sort of kind of in northern climates and the other one's going to be for everybody the only bad news is even if you are in the dewalt family only one of them's dewalt product but if you're in the dewalt family you can't get it yet but it's going to be cool especially for preppers and then i'm going to talk to you about why when somebody says you should trust Anything you likely should, and I'm going to prime that with the quote of the day today here at the beginning. This is by uh, Joe Abercrombie, who's kind of a fantasy fiction writer for young adults uh, out of the UK. And guys, has been been around a while, but he ain't he ain't gone or nothing. He's actually younger than me by a couple of years. Uh, Joe Abercrombie wrote one time in one of his books, "Trust." It was a word that only liars used. A word the truthful. Had no need of. Oof, boy, that's a, and I made a, a a meme out of that that will circulate as a standalone maybe next week. It's just all these media screens and that quote and uh, the author's name. Anyway, with that, let's dive on into it and hear from uh, Dr. Ron. In order, you're going to hear Dr. Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and then Chris Rossini in the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights for the week. People have to have to realize that they have to look past the propaganda. That is what is so annoying. So to, to me, whether it's propaganda on economic matters, lying about statistics, lying about COVID, and lying about why we go overseas. Yeah, how are they defending our Constitution by going over for years and years now, ever since World War II, fighting these undeclared wars, and nobody knows exactly what they're for, and they just linger. <clears throat> the last one, you know, the one that uh, probably isn't over yet, is Afghanistan. That's 20 years. We have to get the American people not only to be for peace, but to be for peace in spite of the propagandists and the military-industrial complex. And in spite of this whole thing that you're not a good patriot, you're not a good American, you don't defend the troops. Those were the arguments that were, that, uh, were used against me. Uh, we should be seeking, seeking peace, and that to me is the most difficult because people are talked into it, and that unfortunately is the reason that they go along with it, and it doesn't serve the interest of a- anybody else. This is uh, something that's from Politico this morning in their morning briefing. <clears throat> if we put up that next item... And this is just kind of a heads up for people who are following it. They're desperately trying to figure out a way to get the U.S. involved uh, in this war. Congress is going insane trying to find a ways to get us in this war because we've got to save Ukraine's democracy, even if it costs us a nuclear annihilation. Um, limited no-fly zone gains steam among foreign policy elite. Foreign policy elite is a code word for neocons. 
But what they want to do, what they're talking about, Dr. Paul, is what they call a limited no-fly zone, which is to use NATO and U.S. Uh, air power to uh, create humanitarian corridors in Ukraine. And now that sounds great to people who don't know what they're talking about, but in reality, a no-fly zone, as we know from Iraq, remember we had the two no-fly zones in Iraq. Those came about when the U.S. military annihilated everything within those zones. All air defenses, all planes were shot down and, and, and downed. That's how you create a no-fly zone. So to create this limited no-fly zone in Ukraine, regardless of whatever place you'd have in Ukraine, the U.S. would have to decimate all Russian air defenses, would have to decimate all Russian aircraft in the area, uh, and that would spark World War III. So even talk of a limited no-fly zone is talk of World War III, and the question is, for what? Is it? Is this really worth it, you know, America? Our country over the last hundred years has had a very nasty mental addiction. And I say a hundred years is enough. And that is that no matter what happens or where it happens, the knee-jerk reaction is government has to do something. And the problem is they're going to listen to you. They will do something, lots of things. And what ends up happening inevitably is Americans end up regretting it afterwards. And we could just look at just the past several decades. We could go much further back. But just in the last several decades, you had the extreme emotion after 9-11. And what did the U.S. government do? They invaded Iraq, where there were no WMDs. They had nothing to do with 9-11. And today, people, you know, they don't even talk about it. It's so bad and so embarrassing that it's not even brought up anymore. And look what just happened over these last two years with COVID. Again, extreme emotion lockdowns, masks, anti-social distancing, only to find out afterwards that none of it worked, none of it was necessary. And again, with the vaccines, extreme emotion over these vaccines and how people treated each other over these vaccines, only to find out that the Pfizer CEO goes on TV and says they offer very limited protection, if any. Do you see the pattern here? We have single narratives, emotions, extreme emotions, and then a plea for government to do something, and then it ends up with terrible regret. And that all stems from this bad philosophy over this last hundred years that government must be everywhere, be everything for everybody, and always do something. And until we break out of this mental habit, we're going to just stay in this hamster wheel and just keep experiencing this same cycle. We need to be Americans again and vigilantly guard our liberties and our freedoms, and the government itself has to be cut down in size and limited in scope so that we can live the free lives that we're meant to live. You know, Chris's comments about always wanting government to do something remind me of an episode of the Survival Podcast I did either in 08 or 09. It's that long ago. And it was called The Issues Test, and I think I did a a two-part series on it. And one of the things I said was, whenever we're deciding what to do about any issue, the first question to ask is, what happens if we don't do anything at all? If we if we let go of the hysteria and we don't do anything at all, then what happens? Something really interesting happened when I did that episode, and this is what happens. And you know, the interesting thing was, there wasn't a crisis du jour that had been revved up and lathered up and foamed up at the time that I did that podcast. There's always something. 
But what I mean is there, we weren't in the wake of a 9-11. We weren't in the middle of a fake pandemic. We weren't in the middle of a potential World War III. There was nothing that big going on. So when people listened to it, they were a little more likely to actually listen and be led by logic versus emotion. There was a woman who worked at one of the companies that I, I was co, co-owner in when I was kind of part of a conglomerate back then, working with my partner, Neil Franklin. And unbeknownst to me, she had, she had found out I was doing the podcast part-time. And uh, so I did it part-time back then uh, for half of 08 and all of 09. And she practically begged me to run for political office because of that episode. And she was about as dyed-in-the-wool ultra-conservative, Christian, right-wing type person that you could get. And at that time, she already knew I was a complete, as far as her concern, wackadoodle libertarian. I hadn't crossed into the world of anarchism yet, but I was about as minarchist as one can get without being anarchist. And she begged me to run for office. And this is the interesting part. That's not how right I was or anything. This is what I think is interesting. I guarantee you, If she had listened to that same episode during a crisis, she would have thought I was absolutely insane. And this is why they use emotions to control you. When one is emotional, one cannot be logical. That's the lesson of the Vulcan from Star Trek. Now, that doesn't mean you have to purge all your emotions and have no emotion. But when one is in an emotionally heightened state... One cannot be logical. That's why when somebody's giving a pervasive, a per, persuasive speech, they spend more time with emotion than they do with fact. They might use fact and then build up to emotion, but you always close with emotion in a persuasive speech. You always use emotion in marketing. And this is, this is very, very well known. Remember, my, my trade, Uh, in the past, even though I did a lot of different things, but it was really all focused on marketing as a discipline and sales as a discipline, two separate disciplines. And in both of those disciplines, and as a public speaker, I can tell you, this is not secret sauce. This is the thing everybody knows. The guy that writes a long-form sales letter about how you can make money in your underwear who learned what he knows from somebody else that wrote long-form sales letters about making money in your underwear knows this. Madison Avenue marketing firms know this. The best marketers and salespeople for the largest Fortune 10 brands know this. And Joe Schmo selling gobbledygook from his kitchen table in his underpants knows this. So don't you think that just maybe your government knows it too? That just maybe the mainstream media knows it too? And just maybe at any point, that they are literally lathering emotion, it is probably the case that whatever they're telling you to do, you should think about in peace and quiet and solitude for just a little bit before deciding to jump into the fray and state your opinion and tell everybody why we have to do something. I don't care if it's government needing to do something or you needing to do something or we all need to do something. The first question. What really happens if we don't do anything? And just to drive home, how insane that can sound and still be right. What would have happened when COVID started had we done absolutely nothing from a standpoint of government mandates or any kind of lockdowns or any kind, if we had done nothing? No more people would have died. 
I'm sorry, they wouldn't have. We didn't save a single life with what we did. We, we cost plenty. We wouldn't have destroyed our economy. Texas and Florida proved that. What would have happened had we done nothing? In what seemed like the greatest crisis in our time until last week, we would have been better off is the answer to the question. And that answer was plain to see for any who would have stepped back three steps and socially distanced from the hype and simply thought about reality and facts before acting. With that, go to something solutions-based. Permaculture real estate development with Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And um, I've had a question about... Um, um, a comment I made, uh, uh, some information I let, I released, uh, during one of the, um, episodes in the, uh, survival podcast. Uh, Jack and I were talking about strange times, which they sure are. Um, and, um, it's in relation to the, um, permaculture developed real estate designs that we're working on. Um, we've always realized that we'd be real estate developers sooner or later. And, um, Obviously, we have the capability to design landscape um, in, in all kinds of ways, but particularly to suit real estate development in that the way that people want to live. Now, um, we've set up Zaytuna Farm over 20 years as a, um, a, a working farm that has uh, demonstrated many, many different ways to use land and develop land so that it's water secure. Um, it has uh, multiple access systems and multiple living systems. And uh, I've driven all those to the point of chaos and then pulled back to the point where they're pretty sweet operations. And it became a, an obvious end game that um, we would be able to develop this site um, and retain its educational capability, but also develop it as a multiple occupancy share property um, in the local legislation of this area we were permitted to put another seven houses on site so a total of eight, eight shares as a real estate development there's actually a um, company title that everybody has a share in plus we have an education center um, which is a it is classified in a development terminology as an eco tourism site where we have a campsite uh, we're permitted to have five cabins. We have a commercial kitchen. Um, we have six showers, six toilets, a uh, small laundrette and an education center. So, um, when we develop the real estate here so that eight people could share in not only the broader area of the farm with just over two acres each, for their own personal use, leaving about 19 acres of common area, but also eight acres around the education center campsite and commercial buildings, main driveway and car park as a share in an income generator. So central to the property is still the education and demonstration, but the income generated from that is now shared with eight shareholders equally and the management of the large community area um, outside of everyone's personal use of just over two acres um, 
we have a community which is purposed around permaculture in the initial mainframe development. And Zaytuna Farm has 28 dams, ponds of different sizes, some quite large, some quite small. Everybody has their own personal pond within their two acres of personal use. Plus, we have a main irrigation system which services everybody with irrigation water. So we're pretty well set up. Now, this became an obvious success when we put it on the market and we sold out within two weeks. Um, we have a waiting list of people that want to buy in, but I don't think anybody wants to sell out. So it becomes very stable real estate when you buy into something that's so well established. So then it became an inquiry that can we set this up um, as an intentional development uh, for other people? Can we set up real estate that is already drought-proof, fireproof, um, and food secure in the way um, the main frame is set, installed and somewhat established? And yes, we can. So it's become now one of our themes in consultancy and design to offer real estate development for eco-hamlets of a small number of, of houses, which say Tuna Farm is, eight houses, you'd call it an eco-hamlet. And anything at 10, 12 plus is starting to get to be a small eco-village up to 80 to 100 houses plus. But we need to set up the earthworks and the irrigation and the land use area specifics so we know where the wilderness is we know where the grazing property, uh, grazing areas are. We know where the laneways are to run the grazing areas like cell grazing. Uh, we know where farm forestry is ideally suited. We actually today consult using LIDAR mapping if an area, if it is available within an area or specific, uh, drone mission flight flights where we can contour map um, quite accurately and then we put a slope map algorithm over the pro- over the mapping so that we can see degrees of slope anything over 18 degrees should be in some sort of wilderness from 18 to 12 it can be in farm forestry from 12 to 8 it can be in production forestry with erosion control from 8 to 4 we can be in crops as long as we've got plenty of erosion control installed and then from two to naught, you can definitely be in crops and you've got to be quite a serious maniac to cause erosion at that flat, in that flat landscape. Um, so we have mapping where we can put surface water flow algorithms over the map and show you exactly the way the water will run at fill capacity, full saturation. We even have some wonderful technology now where we can show dampness with a dual satellite imagery, Grace 1 and Grace 2, wonderful American technology flying in a parallel orbit that actually measure the world's magnetic field. And we can see the damp areas of a site. Of course, we have altitude. We have satellite photography that's very accurate. And we have contour maps that go right down to a foot contours or, or half a foot or even less if needed. So we can we can map at a we can 
using these maps, we can design at a distance um, and we can get the mainframe extremely accurate and we can lay out a subdivision where all the mainframe elements that are so valuable to making human settlement extremely secure in every way, in water, in fireproofing, in food security, in animal systems, forestry systems, everything that creates absolute permanence. We can do most of that on, online from anywhere in the world. In fact, I'm consulting all over the world every week from my office where I'm talking to you now. And I'm very confident of the accuracy of our designs because um, we can get our clients to do a lot of the homework and take a lot of the photos and get a lot of the reference material as we're in the information age. Um, we can do our research on what's needed locally to infill a permaculture design. Um, and then we can do wonderful graphics with our um, graphics design team to give you a plan that's as good as anybody could do online, uh, on the ground. I mean, even better if it's if, if it's got a tree cover on a property because when we use LIDAR, we see right through the trees. So what's happening is we're getting lots of inquiries. Can we do a Zaytuna farm again? Can we do this sort of development again? Can we do it on a larger scale? Can we do it in different in environments and different climates? And the answer is yes, all the way. All right, so, uh, again, man, David, dude, in addition to setting up my 3D printer, thank you for that, because I really didn't want to try to get Jeff to recut that recording, but the original was completely unusable, and like I said, that there, whatever he did with filtering and cleanup, and, and I've been doing audio a long time, and I can clean things up a little bit, but not like that, so thank you for that, because everybody benefited from it. Power of community once again. Now... How about American guinea hogs crossed with Berkshire crosses? Crossed with, I don't remember what the other pig is, but there's a, a tri-cross here. It's a kind of stabilized cross on one side, crossed with American guinea hogs. Darby Simpson's going to talk about that. I'm going to add to it with a little bit on genetics and hybridization. Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grassfit Life back to answer another question that came in via email, this time from Jason. Jason asks, what are your thoughts on the American guinea hog as a first group to breed? Want to highlight the word breed there. Details, based partially on your advice last year, we successfully raised and slaughtered four feeder pigs on pasture with conventional feed. Thanks for your help and encouragement. Now we've got a chance to buy some American guinea hogs that have been crossed with a Berkshire-Hereford mix there between... 25 and 50 pounds right now. The farmer has raised them in the forest with GMO and soy-free feed plus spent brewer's grains and is offering them for a dollar a pound. I know the American guinea hog is a smaller, slower-growing breed, but are supposedly gentler on the land. As I plan to pasture these pigs, it seems like a nice fit. Thank you, as always, Jason. So, Jason, um, we're delving into the world of breeding here, and you... You didn't really go into details, but I'm I'm assuming that maybe you're thinking about doing this as a side hustle, as a business. Uh, when we start talking about breeding pigs, uh, that's uh, either we're selling off feeder pigs or we are, you know, uh, planning to grow our operation and scale up and start marketing. 
pigs in some form or fashion. Um, American guinea hogs. I have never had them. I do think they're a fascinating breed. They do grow a lot slower. So depending on what region of the country you're in, and you didn't tell me here, and I apologize if you've told me in the past, um, uh, you know, that, that, that could be a bad deal. I mean, if you're north, if it's cold, a decent portion of the year, they're going to consume a lot more feed. You're not going to just, you know, pasture them, uh, or run them in the woods and not give them a whole lot of grain, especially in the winter. Um, that would be one thought. I, I guess my big question is what's, what's the plan? Are we selling off feeder pigs? Are we trying to sell breeding stock? Are we going to sell halves and holes or retail cuts or whatever? I'm, I think the American guinea hog is neat. I think that a pure guinea hog is fine for a niche market, specialty restaurants, charcuterie, things of that nature, where you can have a very defined clientele that's willing to pay the premium you'd have to charge in order to keep those little rascals around for 12 to 14 months. Now, I'm a bit intrigued with the guinea hog crossed with a Berkshire Hereford mix. A Berkshire Hereford mix is a pretty good mix. Uh, so you toss in the, the American Guinea and gosh, it sounds like you're going to have like a, a three quarter size pig or maybe a touch smaller. These guys might finish out in a decent time frame. Uh, so I, you know, I think, I think it's interesting. My advice, uh, so first of all, at a dollar a pound, buy as many of these suckers as you want that you can eat and or sell as, as, as feeder pigs, a dollar a pound for a pasture, forest-raised, soy-free, GMO-free operation is ridiculously cheap. Run. Do not walk to your buddy that's willing to sell you these pigs and write him a check. Um, you know, if he's going to have these guys around for a while, and depending on what you're wanting to do with these animals... I would tell you to buy some as feeders and run them and keep very, very detailed notes of how long it takes you to finish them and how many pounds of feed they eat and all the other things that an astute businessman would want to know to build his Excel file so that he can determine how profitable these rascals might be. Here's the thing about breeding pigs. It's expensive. It is really expensive to maintain a boar and two or three or four sows. Um, you have to have a pretty good size operation to justify that. Now, if this is just like an enjoyment of life thing and you've got the space to do this and the equipment to do it to pharaoh properly, okay, that's fine. But from a pure business standpoint, if you told me that, you know, this guy's going to have these pigs around at 50 pounds for a buck a pound for an extended period of time, and you're wanting to do this as a business, there's no chance on the face of God's green earth you're going to talk me into a farrowing operation. He is selling those to you so cheap, you'd be silly to do all that extra work. Pay the man. I mean, seriously, pay them. Uh, these things are worth probably double almost per pound what, what he's charging you at 25 to 50 pounds just to not have the headache and expense and overhead of breeding stock. 
but again, it boils down to context and what you're trying to do. And, and I, I'm just kind of throwing some stuff out because you, you didn't get real specific about that in your email. But, um, I, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. I, this could be a really tasty pig and a kind of a neat cross. Um, would it take longer than, you know, seven, eight months? Like what we see here with a, uh, like something like a Burke Hereford mix? Yeah, probably. But it's probably not going to take 12 to 14 months like a straight American guinea hog. Um, and then it, it kind of depends too. Like, you know, what's, what's the market? What's the marketing plan? Do you have some high end restaurants that'd be interested in this that would be willing to pay a little bit more? Or are you going to turn them into charcuterie? And retail it for a ridiculous amount per pound. Um, yeah, I've got I've got a lot more questions than I've got answers. I I, I do think this is neat. You, you've got some experience under your belt, uh, so definitely go buy some of his feeders. Take good notes, and then maybe reassess. Now, if this is a going out of business sale, and this is your one and only chance to get these guys, eh? Okay, buy some feeders. Uh, Pick out the nicest, uh, you know, two that you want to keep as sows and keep one as a boar. Uh, castrate the rest. Boar taint's a real thing. Um, keep the boar separated until you're ready to breed and, you know, go for it. Uh, you know, worst case, you end up butchering everybody, right? Um, and you, you can you can castrate that boar later on. Uh, you're you're going to need some some friends, some big, strong men, uh, and, and, or a vet that can knock him out and do it, but you can castrate him and butcher him later. Just want to give him about, uh, Oh, 40, 45 plus days after castration to let that taint get out of his system. Um, I'm really intrigued. Please follow up with me. Let me know how this experiment goes and what the outcome is. And, uh, how they finish out, what your, uh, what your feed ratio to gain is. I'd just be really interested to see how this pencils out. So Jason, those are my thoughts. Um, and uh, I hope to hear back from you. Uh, if anybody listening to this has got a question that you'd like answered in 10 minutes or less, shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co. You can also check out all the resources we have on our website at grass-fed life. That's grassfedlife.co. Uh, we've got free courses. We've got paid for courses and all about pigs. If you want to homestead pigs, we have a, a homestead pig course for $39 or we've got a, a for-profit pig course for $199. And I promise you it's going to pay itself back tenfold. If you're serious about this, starting your own side hustle to get that additional income stream going or scaling up, maybe you've already got a farm operation, you're ready to add that next enterprise, check us out, check out our resources, and as always, keep these questions coming. Jason, I hope you found this helpful. I look forward to hearing from you in the uh, future about how this turns out. So just, I'm doing something dangerous here. I'm assuming that I'm understanding what Darby's suggesting if you decide you want to breed these guys. He's saying pick kind of your best boar or boars, maybe two, and your best sows out of this group and then breed them back to each other. That might be a fine idea, but there is something to watch out for. It is very possible 
you've got this cross on one side. It's already a cross. But that seems to be a, a cross that's been bred back and bred back to... Not what I mean is the same cross bred to itself so many times. It's kind of its own thing now from looking it up, like, like a Labradoodle. Not all Labradoodles today are Labradors and Poodles bred. You actually can stabilize the cross. And then you take two Labradoodles and put them together, Mama Labradoodle and Daddy Labradoodle, and you get Puppy Labradoodles. If you... Make Labradoodles from Labrador A and Poodle B, and I don't know which direction it goes, so just Labrador A and Poodle B, and Labrador C and Poodle D. And then you got puppies from both of those. Okay, totally different lines. But they're both 50-50 crosses. And you take puppy and puppy from different litters, and when they grow up into dog and dog, now you breed Labradoodle A to Labradoodle B, and you do that... You will get some that look like Labradoodles, mostly. You will get some that look like Labradors more, and some that look like Poodles more. It's called genetic drift, and it's because when you when you create a hybrid, you you cross the traits, and that the certain traits are dominant, certain traits are recessive. And you see what happens with that initial cross. And when you rebreed that before you stabilize the breed, which would we would breed those prodigy, and then we would find another line so we don't get too much overlap in our genetics, too much uh, you know inbreeding. And we would keep doing that. And in about five to seven generations, you can stabilize the first cross. But when you first breed back, you don't. And I did a video a few weeks ago on this on what I call my mongrel chickens. These were the chickens. They had an amazing hybrid vigor and a beautiful look to them. I called them blue phantoms. And they were the Billy Roy, Billy Roy Bob chicken rooster, right? He, uh, he's an old English uh, splash blue uh, bantam game bird. And I bred him to just a plain old bantam buff Orpington female. And his babies are beautiful. And his babies grew amazingly fast. And they got fairly large for a bantam. That's hybrid vigor. I then bred the offspring. Now, I do have some inbreeding here, but the, the result is the same anyway with just one inbreeding. I have some of those that look a lot like Billy Roy, and most of them are female. It's interesting. I have some that look quite a bit like mom, or grandma, I should say, and most of them are males. Also interesting, but doesn't prove anything. And I have some that are somewhat similar to their parents and some that would probably be good ones to select and start breeding to stabilize the breed if I wanted to make a new breed. And I have some that are growing at a much slower rate and some that are still growing at an accelerated rate. Some are still expressing hybrid vigor in their growth rate and some of them are actually behind the curve compared to where um, they would be if they were just a, a straight breed. So what does this mean? It means that there is an unpredictability in what happens when you take a cross that works out and you breed the offspring. You don't know what you're going to get. So the reason I put the time into that is, one, it's a thing. It's true. As someone who's done a lot of breeding more with reptiles than anything else, I can tell you that this, this is how this works. Uh, and it's not just with you know, color and things like that. It's, it absolutely applies to things like growth rates. And so I, it's, it's a thing. But the other reason is you might find that you get a 
rapidly finished pig here. And that rapidly finished pig may take some of the qualities of American guinea hog, which I was opposed to the American guinea hog as a meat animal, period, because of the same thing uh, uh, Darby said. They just take too long to finish. And I always consider them, if they're going to be anything, they're a homesteader's pig. you got to have the right property where they get a lot of natural forage and you don't mind holding them through that one winter, etc. And then I ate it. And when I ate it, my opinion went and totally did a 180. And I said, these are the greatest pigs you can raise if you can figure out how to do it profitably either for yourself or profitably in, in, in selling them off. That there is not a better tasting piece of pork on planet Earth is how I felt when I ate American Guinea. And I mean that. I'm not just saying it. If you end up with this cross finishing in a single season and having that amazing pork character, because there's not much wrong with a Berkshire either, you might be like home run city. But it may not be sustainable if there is that expressed hybrid vigor without maintaining stock that is separate in the line so that all the offspring are from the cross. And then if you do prove out the new breed, right, it may or may not, just because it looks the same and they're all kind of consistent in what they're throwing as, as, as kids, um, it still may not have the it may then you might be able to keep the the character of the meat and the look of the pig but it may genetically drift even with kind of proving out the line toward one side or the other if it drifted toward the fast finish that would be good you see what i'm saying if you if you if you order a couple meat chickens right your your cornish cross four way cross secret sauce recipe meat chickens and you breed them to each other they don't make more of themselves. That breed's never been stabilized, and I'm pretty sure if they could stabilize it, they would. That's just some additional thoughts on that one. Now, let's go to a lightning round on, on finance and investing. Hello, TSP. We have a lightning round of questions, and the first question comes from Zeb, and Zeb is asking about an HSA, a health savings account, and his question is, would you invest money that's currently in an HSA in the stock market if you're not planning to use it any time for health expenses. Well, yes, Zeb, I definitely would. You use the generic term anytime soon. I don't know exactly what that means, but when it comes to investing in the stock market or any investment for that matter, it's all about the time value of money. And the longer your time horizon is, the more flexibility you have to absorb and mitigate any risk from market fluctuation. Generally, I tell people that if they have about a three to a five year window, then that's what I would consider an adequate period for a long-term growth strategy. So yes, if you don't need to touch that HSA money for you know three or so years into the future, then I personally wouldn't have any problem with investing that in the stock market. You mentioned that your plan would be not to touch the HSA unless you absolutely had to, and I think that's a really good strategy, especially if you're young, because effectively an HSA is just an alternative retirement account If you don't use your HSA by the time you're 65 for medical expenses, then once you're 65 and older, there's no 20% penalty for withdrawing it, and you don't have to use the funds only for medical expenses. So again, it's not an IRA, but effectively it becomes an IRA because after age 65, you simply can withdraw the money, use it for whatever you want, and just pay the ordinary income tax on it. 
as far as how much of it you should invest or as to what your asset allocation should be, well, my recommendation would be, as with any investment, you should be mitigating risk. You shouldn't invest in anything that you don't know about. And generally speaking, using an ETF or a mutual fund that gives you broad market exposure, something like the S&P 500, is going to give you growth opportunities that you know historically has always more than kept up with inflation and then also mitigated some risk. So I wouldn't be hesitant about investing in HSA if you don't need the money right away, but as with all things, invest with caution. Our next question comes from Rose, and Rose heard Jack and I mention on a recent episode about the evils of the 529 plan. Her question is, you know, what should you do if you already have a significant amount of money already in a 529? Well, Rose, first off, I wouldn't panic. I wouldn't go out and withdraw your money and, you know, pay the penalty on it. 529s are not the worst investment vehicle, but they're certainly not the best. And the reason I personally think they're evil is that they just so much limit not only what you can invest your money in and what you can use the money for, but also the plans that I've seen are very restrictive in how often you can change your investment options. A lot of them only allowing you to make one or two choices in entire 12 months. I think that's just tyrannically restrictive. And it doesn't afford someone much of an opportunity to get out of a market that's headed to a recession. And while I'm not a chicken little that's always worried about the sky falling, and I think that recessions are fairly rare, there are definitely times when there are enough warning signs to see that they're coming and you can get out of the way and save yourself a lot of heartache of losing huge amounts of money in a big market downturn. I'm talking something like 2008 or the dot-com bubble of 2000. And if you're in an investment vehicle that only allows you to make one or two allocation changes, you know, over a period of 12 months, well, that can really restrict you from getting out of the market before recession. And so personally, that's the major problem I have with a 529. In your case, I know you have several children. And so if I had my money invested in a 529, if I wasn't worried about an upcoming recession, then I'd have the bulk of that money probably just invested in an S&P 500 index fund. I'd leave it there. I wouldn't worry about it. I'd keep tabs on market conditions. If I thought that it was very likely that we were moving into a long-term recession and I was concerned about a you know long-term bear market where we're going to lose 30, 40, 50% of the principal value of my money, then I would definitely sell that. And they are going to have some type of a guaranteed minimum income type fund. And that's where I would place my money until the dust settled And then once it looked like things were improving and the market had bottomed out, I would move my money from that cash-secured fund and put it back into the S&P 500 index. Now, as far as alternatives to the 529, the big thing to remember about investing is that money is fungible. And what I mean by that is that a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. It doesn't matter if that dollar comes from your checking account, your savings account, You know, that dollar is going to buy the same amount of education no matter what funds you take it from, or even if you pay it out of cash flow from your paycheck or your current income stream. So the bottom line is you're investing for your future, and that future is going to include things like items that you want to buy in the future. It's going to include funding your retirement. It's going to be paying off your home. It's going to be, in your case, you know, paying for some or a portion or all of your children's education. And so I would encourage you to worry less about where you're investing that money and more about how you're investing it. For example, our last question was about HSAs. Well, me personally, I would be maxing out my family HSA long before I put any money in a 529. 
And although I couldn't use that HSA money directly to pay for my children's education, the money is there. It is fungible. I can use it to cover medical health expenses for my family. The money can grow there. And by the time I'm 65, if I haven't used all that money on health care, then I can put it towards my retirement. So the 529 is one bucket that you can use for saving for the future, but it's really one of the last ones I would turn to. That may not have fully answered your question. If you reach out to me and contact me through my one of my websites, I can discuss this with you in more detail. The other thing I'd, I'd have you consider, and this is what I do with my kids. I know you have a large family. I've raised six kids, and while we did save and we helped them save for their college educations, my biggest emphasis for them wasn't on saving for college, but it was teaching them the value of work and helping them so that they could learn how to work and to pay not only for their education, but for other things that they wanted to set themselves up for the careers that they wanted to pursue. Again, if you get in contact with me, we could talk about that in more detail. And that takes us to our last question, which is from Chris in North Georgia. Chris is asking about when should he sell a stock investment? And he tends to hold on to things too long. He has some positions that he's made, you know, 150% on. He has others that he's lost 50% on. Well, Chris, real quick here. The biggest thing to remember is that the stock market doesn't care how long you've owned a position or what you paid for it or whether you have a profit or a loss. And the reason I bring that up is because as an investor, that's usually the thing that we're most concerned with. And those things are very important, especially from a tax consideration and your net worth. You know, how long you own a stock can affect your capital gains and whether you're making or losing money in a stock is definitely going to impact your net worth. So while those things are very important to us and we should be focused and considering them, well, none of your personal issues impact the future direction of that stock price. So strictly speaking, from an investment standpoint, whenever you look at your position and you want to determine whether you should sell it or not, ignore all your personal issues and look at the future potential that that stock has to appreciate. And in fact, rather than looking at it as should you sell it, I think you should look at it from the position of, should you buy it, right? When you own it, you should get up every day and look at your portfolio and say, would I buy any of these stocks today? You know, do I think they have enough future potential that I want to own them? And would I go out and buy them today? Because in effect, if they're in your portfolio, then you've made the choice that day to buy them and to own them. So look at your stocks, look at the company's future earning potential. If you think that stock's going to appreciate, then hold on to it. If you think that either long or short term, it's likely to go down, then sell it. Lock in either your profit or your loss. And if it goes down and you still like it, you think it has future appreciation, you can always buy it back. From a market timing perspective, I think the best thing you can do is look at the trend. You know, if your stock that's gone up 150%, it's going to be developing some type of a trend line. And it'll go up and it'll pull back a little bit. It'll go up and it'll pull back a little bit. Well, you watch that pattern, and if at any point it either stops going up or if it ever pulls back and drops precipitously and breaks that trend, then oftentimes that's a good indication that it's time to sell, lock in your profits, and either move on to something else or wait for that stock to crater and you know bottom over a period of months and then buy back into it. Well, hey, Chris and everybody else, thanks for your questions. Until the next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Good stuff as always from John. Let's move on to Tim Toolman Cook with three new pieces of gear that you're going to want to know about. 
Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to do another segment for the expert council. So let's dive right in. This week I've got three different products that have been brought to my attention recently that can be very handy for us in the preparedness and handyman field. So, the first one, and I came to know about this recently when I got my truck stuck. I decided to drive up and over a snowbank and then broke through the snow and got high and dry, basically sitting on this frozen snowbank. Had to dig myself out, needed some traction, had to go dig up some sand because my bucket was empty and posted about it on social media. And someone said, hey, why don't you check out tube sand? And I thought, what are you talking about? Because normally, sand, when I buy it, comes in those woven mesh bags. And the biggest problem with those is you leave them on the back of your truck for traction. And the moisture, the dampness, the melting snow gets in the bag, freezes it solid, and it's no good for anything. So I got digging online, and it turns out that you can buy sand in these long 60-pound plastic-sealed tube bags. If you knew this, great. I didn't. And you can set it up over your wheel wells in the back of your truck. So it does a couple of things. It gives you added weight on the back of the wheels for driving in the wintertime, which aids in stability. But it also gives you traction sand if you get stuck or on something slippery. And it's a completely sealed plastic bag, so the moisture can't get in there and freeze. It's just a really slick, super easily engineered product that I found out about and I thought I would share with you guys. Now, number two. If you ever deal with high drifts with a snowblower, uh, lately we've had quite a bit of snow. And if you've ever seen snowblowers with those funny little bars that come up, they're not, you know, markers or anything like that. It turns out that they're drift cutters. And you might say, well, Tim, you know, you do snow removal for a living. How did you not know about these? Well, I didn't. I was, uh, I've always had to go through these big drifts and I just work my way back and forth and try to push the snow down as I go through. Well. If you didn't know this, you can get those that'll kind of double the height of your snow. And what it does is it cuts through the snow bank, the, the snow drifts, and kind of forces the snow to fall down in front of your snowblower. And in turn, makes it way easier for you to go through snow drifts that normally you couldn't, or normally would be really hard on the shoulders and arms and, you know, just overall difficult. Uh, I'll have links for those products for sure. I'll throw them across to Jack. There's a universal set for about 40 bucks on Amazon. I thought they were really cool. Now, number three, and I couldn't make a list like this without talking about a DeWalt product. But DeWalt has a new battery top-off that just came out that is going to be really cool for us in the preparedness field and also really cool for us DeWalt enthusiasts. Milwaukee has had a top-off for quite a while that'll take a regular AC plug. It's a really cool product, and I was kind of hoping DeWalt would come out with something like that, but this is the next best thing. The traditional DeWalt battery topper was just a normal standard USB port on the top. The new one is a USB-C port coming out of the back of your DeWalt battery. So how this works, it slides onto the top, it gives you a standard USB-A port and a USB-C port. Now, the cool thing is they're up to 100 watt power. So you can use your battery as a charger for your laptop, for your phone. If you want to steal some power off it and put it into a power bank, that works as well. The package itself 
is really cool. It comes with the adapter. It comes with a 65 watt AC adapter and a hundred watt USB-C cable. Now, the coolest part about this entire product, it's coming to market in about March, I believe, but I had to share it with you guys. The coolest part about the USB-C port is it's two-way. So now, can you not only tap into an already existing power source that you have with your DeWalt batteries, you can also charge a DeWalt battery using a USB-C port. So if that is all you happen to have, you can take your DeWalt battery, slap the adapter on, plug the USB-C cable into it, and then plug it into your computer and plug and charge it that way. Or whatever you happen to have a USB-C port on. I love the fact that it works both ways, allows you to tap into existing power, and it if you use all the proper accessories with it, you can get a 100-watt charging capability with it. I think, guys, this, I cannot wait for this one to come out. This is one of those things where preppers and DeWalt tool enthusiasts kind of meet in the middle, and it's a really good product. So I hope you guys learned something. I always love sharing some of the new things that I found out recently, and who doesn't love to find out about new gear that can make your life a little bit better. So guys, if you want to know more about what I do, run by toolmantim.co, that's the easiest way, and come by the YouTube channel on Thursdays and Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. I do my uh, workshop podcast there live, Thursday's Repairedness, the Art of Home Maintenance when help isn't around the corner, and Sunday evening tends to be an interview with someone in or around the preparedness entrepreneurial type field. That's it for me this week, guys. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. I do have all the links that Tim included in the show notes for you. I found it interesting that um, the coming soon on the DeWalt website of the uh, USB-C charger doesn't even have like a drawing or a picture or a mock-up of exactly what it's going to look like. So I'm excited about that one, and I have a feeling once I get my hands on one, a T-SPAS-style review will be coming to it. With that, let's go ahead and uh, dig into my segment. I, I want to reiterate that quote quote from uh, fantasy writer Joe Abercrombie, uh, again, who's a U.K. writer. Trust. It was a word that only liars used. A word the truthful had no need of. I was looking for a quote about liars and trust today. And there's apparently not a lot of them. Maybe it's frowned upon talking about it. But I read that one and I thought I couldn't do better myself if I made one up and invented somebody that supposedly said it to give the quote credibility. Because, you know, trust me, people do that. You can trust me. But you notice I don't say trust me very often. And you notice a lot of the people around you that you generally do give freely your trust to, they don't really use the word. Here's another interesting thing about trust. When you give someone advice and they say, well, I trust you, I think most people that are not psychopaths or sociopaths have a little bit of fear or hesitation or concern when they hear somebody say that to them. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever given somebody some some advice and you just gave them, they asked you. I'm not talking about unsolicited advice. They said, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And you say, you know, this is what I would do. And they say, well, I trust you. 
Don't you kind of like go, wait, 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 whoa, 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 right? Now, if it's something that like they know absolutely nothing about and you know cold, you might say, okay, good, fine. Like, should I replace these tires on my car? Because the guy at the shop said I need to replace them, and I don't think I need to. And you're somebody that's a mechanic and, and work with tires your whole life, and you look at it and go, yeah, those need to be replaced. Say, well, I trust your opinion. You probably don't feel bad about that. But if it's something where a person could go either way with, and they say they trust you, you're probably like, well, wait a minute. I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm not giving you a recommendation. Do you see? Have you ever had? I, I get that all the time. And I guess it's because I'm a personality and, and what have you and do a podcast. And I, when I get to talk to people offline in real life, sometimes I'll say, no, oh, no, no, no. I did not say to trust me. I said, this was my opinion. In the end, you have to live with the choice. I think that's what sane, honest, rational people always tend to feel, unless it's that very specific thing, like I absolutely know this thing, the other person doesn't, and then they appreciate your recommendation and they trust it. Trust isn't a bad thing. But when the person evoking the word is the person that, that needs to be trusted, there's a, there's a red flag Sometimes a red flag doesn't always really mean bad. It's just, you should look at that. And how many times have you been told in the last two years, trust the science. Trust the science. Trust the science. Science is not to be trusted. Any real scientist would tell you that. Only a sociopath. Only a liar. Only the dishonest, only people pushing an agenda would tell you you need to trust science or believe in science. One believes in a God. To believe means to have faith. Faith is that which cannot be known. So one has faith in the unknown. I have faith that I'll wake up tomorrow. I don't have knowledge of the fact that I'll wake up tomorrow. Based on all the evidence I have and the fact that I'm not sitting here feeling like I'm going to die and I don't think a bomb's going to land on my roof tonight, I have faith Strong faith that I'll wake up tomorrow. I can't know that. Anything could happen. That's faith. We don't have faith and hence trust in things that can be known. We pull at them. We tear at them. We examine them. And we cross-examine them. And we do it as, as devoid as emotion, devoid to emotion as possible. There's something about a gut feeling We should consider gut feelings. We also need to consider logic and the source of, of information and facts. And there's only one logical thing that, uh, that an informed, aware person who's actually thinking for themselves could come up with right now when you're told by either government or media that you should trust them. And that is that it's a, a word that only liars use. And a word the truthful have no need of, in the words of Joe Abercrombie, because it is the height of insanity to trust those who have lied to you consistently in the past. Consistently. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much because I have a, a segment planned on it tomorrow in Outback with Jack, but how about the Ukraine biolabs? The United States government did this in, a, in a, about a two-week period. There's no... Bio labs that the United States has control of or is funding in Ukraine, it is Russian disinformation. 
And they said it over and over and over again, even when nobody asked. It's all crazy QAnon theory and Russian disinformation. And I would say, Shakespeare once wrote, Methinks thou dost, thou dost protest too much. And then they said, well, there's, there's biological research facilities, but, well, any modern nation has those, but they're not U.S. controlled. And they, okay, well, we funded them, but they're not weapons. I don't really think anybody was saying they were weapons. They were saying maybe you were researching shit that could be dangerous. Oh, we're not doing that. To someone sitting in front of the Senate from the Biden administration, can't remember her name right now, saying, we're actually very concerned that the Russians could gain access to these biological research facilities that we now know were funded by the government. That all went down in about 14, 10 days, something like that. It went from Russian disinformation to absolute fact in 10 days. The people that told you it was Russian disinformation and then admitted that they were lying were the same people that told you that a cloth mask would protect you from a virus. They were the same people that told you an arbitrary number like six feet of socially distancing would do the square root of fuck all in protecting you from a virus. They're the same people that told you that this war is 100% Putin's fault. They're the same people that told you every lie that you've heard going all the way back to there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. If you believe that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, I will forgive you because I did too. I absolutely did. That was a long, long time ago. But where is the point where when you've been consistently lied to for long enough, you just assume from now on that when they use the word trust, it's a word that only liars really need to use because the truthful don't need to use the word trust. Trust is not asked for if it is real. Trust is earned through consistency. It is likely that you do trust what you hear on the Survival Podcast. And you likely do it for two reasons. Three reasons. First and foremost, I don't ever ask you to trust me, and I literally have a disclaimer that says I reserve the right to be wrong. That, that's probably the first reason, even if you don't realize it. The second reason is that When I give you information, in general, it checks out. Over time, I end up being correct in my assessment or in my reporting. I'm careful about saying this is true versus this is my opinion. And if you've listened for a long enough time, let's say some of y'all 10 years or more, you probably feel like, well, Jack's earned our trust. And number three, you know that when I'm wrong, I'll say I was wrong. I'll explain why I think I got it wrong and where we go from here. And the other side of it is, I'm really clear when I'm giving you my opinion. That's earning someone's trust. I trust my wife. I trust my wife because my wife and I have been together for almost 25 years. And that trust has been earned on both sides. I trust my grandchildren as much as you can trust a kid because I know kids will lie on occasion to try to get out of trouble. But overall, the trust is commensurate with the consistency of the behavior. I trust a lot of people in a lot of ways. I trust a lot of people on a lot of things that I don't trust on some other things.
I'll trust uh, Tim Toolman Cook's opinion on an impact tool. I don't know if I'm going to trust Tim Toolman Cook's opinion on dealing with a venomous snake. Does that make sense? Why would I? And he probably wouldn't expect me to. People earn trust, and they earn trust in specific categories. And I'd like to ask yourself if you really trust the science or trust the media. Or isn't it interesting that CNN's tagline at least used to be the most trusted name in news? Why do they need to tell you that they're trusted if they're actually trusted? You know what? Here's an example of how a brand gets associated with a thing because it's true, not because they tell people that it's true. Volvo never went out to become known as a very safe vehicle. And the truth is today, Volvo doesn't stand out much differently from a Chevy or a Ford or a Toyota in a safety standpoint because all the vehicles have gotten so much safer. But long before there were any regulations requiring it, the people that were building Volvos just got really good at what they did in building a car. And they didn't really build the car to be safer than other cars. They built the car to be better than other cars. And hence, it ended up being safer. And over time, the word Volvo, and you, if you're younger, you may not know this because, like I said, it's kind of equalized today. But when you look back to the 70s and 80s, Volvo meant safety. Now, Volvo didn't come out and say, our cars are safe. People drove around in Volvos and they observed the fact that, in general, they survived wrecks better than other vehicles, and safety became synonymous with Volvo. Now, that's how trust should work. If a news source really is trusted versus really good at propaganda, lies, and deceit, they shouldn't have to tell you they're trusted. They shouldn't have to ask for your trust. Only liars need the word trust in that capacity. The truthful, well, they don't have any need for it. Trust simply ends up over time being earned. And if you place your trust in people who have willingly lied to you, in the words of a fictitious character, Dr. Gregory House, somewhere there is a tree working tirelessly, converting CO2 into oxygen, so that you can breathe. I believe that you owe it an apology. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Let's wrap things up by reminding you, you can always help out uh, the Survival Podcast and the work that we're doing here simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day that I have for you today, and usually I have one. Today I've got one. These are all items I've reviewed. Uh, the reviews are archived. Everything is, is categorically uh, al uh, alphabetized into different categories at tspaz.com. Uh, so you can look them up, all the ones I've ever done. There's over 500 items in the T-SPAS -Spaz catalog. And uh, today's is the Mason Tops Complete Mason Jar Fermentation Kit. Yesterday we did a show on living foods, and I thought this would be a good product to bring around. And you can get the individual components or the whole kit. The kit is made up of four... Um, pebbles is what they call them, which are just big, thick pieces of solid glass that are designed to fit just inside either a wide mouth or small mouth mason jar. Don't use small mouth mason jars. Don't do it. There's no good reason unless it's all you can get. Use the wide mouth ones for everything, by the way. Standardize on them. That way all the lids fit. Anyway, you can get them for either side if you don't agree with me. 
And then they also have these little, they almost look like rubber, flat, baby bottle nipple things. And your standard uh, ring that, that holds down a lid on a jar goes around them and holds them down like they're a lid, and they let gas vent off for the fermentation. And it comes with a packer, too, if you get the whole kit, which is a two-sized uh, wood packer for, like, packing krauts and things like that. It's a fantastic kit. It works really well. As our guest said yesterday, you don't have to have any specialized equipment to do fermentation. I've found that my ferments do come out better with using products like this kit. I've had some other ones I've tried too. But having a properly sized weight that holds everything under the brine and having the vent tops that just seem to get more consistent fermentation with it. So you might want to give it a try. And I included a link in the write-up, and in the, the daily mail that goes out today, there'll be two uh, links for product because a lot of people, when they get into fermentation, like we talked about yesterday, are a little bit apprehensive. Well, there's a great book. It's called Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. And I have a link for that. And the two would go together like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, or if you want to get into fermentation, you don't want to buy specialized equipment. You want to just work with what you got. You can do that. And then that book would be a great item as well. But remember, no matter what it is, uh, you can find, you, you will, uh, you will find it at tspaz.com. And I have personally used it. I have personally spent my money on it. If I didn't spend my money on it, I wouldn't ask you to, uh, just, That's part of the trust that I've tried to build into the brand, I guess, right? Anyway, with that, let's go ahead uh, and uh, wish you guys a good day. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and we will be back tomorrow with Outback with Jack. Remember, we will be live streaming. I don't have it updated yet, but you can always find details about the next live stream coming up at tspclive.com. And if you want to get reminders, get on the Telegram announcement channel. There's links in every episode or on the Get Social page at the survivalpodcast.com. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way